Welcome to the second season of the CEBC MENA podcast, The Future Mobility Season, that covers various topics that support the transition towards sustainable, equitable, and resilient mobility system. My name is Ahmed Samir, and I'll be hosting today's episode. For today's episode, we'll focus on a very critical and important topic. Today, we will be speaking about the people's mobility behavior, and specifically on the so-called carb hide. I'm very pleased to have a very special guest today, Dr. Joanna Moody. Hi, Joanna. Pleasure to have you. Could you please tell us more about yourself and the work you do at MIT Energy Initiative? Hi, thank you, Ahmed. My name is Joanna Moody, and I am the Research Program Manager for MIT Energy Initiative's Mobility Systems Center. Really excited to be here to talk with you today. Thank you. Always a pleasure having you, Joanna, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So let's get started. What exactly is that car pride? So I define car pride as the attribution of social status and personal image to owning and using a car. And so it's really about the symbolic value that a car has, and that value has sort of two facets. One, about what it says about yourself. So, for example, if I'm in the U.S. and I drive a pickup truck, what does that sort of say about the ruggedness of my job or where I live and work? If I drive a minivan or a family SUV, what does that say about my image and sort of what I believe about myself, what I want other people to see about myself and what I care about my family, for example? And so the type of vehicle you have, the fact that you own a vehicle, that says something about who you are to other individuals. And then there's also a social status aspect. And I think this is extremely important when you start to um, look at countries where motorization rates are lower now, but are accelerating. And really here, as incomes grow, the car is an aspirational good. Um, It's a symbol of success, of wealth. And so there is this sense that owning a car shows that you've achieved some level of success um, compared to potentially others. Wow, that's quite interesting. So Joanna, could you tell us a little bit more about this research? What factors did you consider to give the car pride school? Yeah, absolutely. So our work has looked at how do we measure car pride? um, And we've done this in two different settings. So the first is actually across countries, and there we actually surveyed 50 different countries across many different continents, um, different levels of economic development. For the country level car pride, we had a survey that consists of 12 different statements. Um, And these statements are things like, a car is an important part of my personal image. And these statements were defined and tested and refined through a number of survey instruments. But in general, they were designed to capture two facets of pride that were well-established in the social psychology literature and just talking about pride as a construct in general. And then also to cover those two facets of pride attached to both car ownership and to car use. And those two facets of pride are somewhat related to sort of this personal image versus social status. Although in the social psychology literature, they're called 
um, hubristic pride, which is about sort of the social comparative aspects of pride. What does it say about me relative to others? And then there's also the authentic pride, which is more about the personal image. What does it say about myself to myself? And how does it match my own image of myself? Those are the two facets of pride that are fairly well established in the social psychology space. Which countries did the research cover? And if there are any MENA countries included, perhaps could you also compare between the United States and the Middle Eastern countries? That would be really interesting to know. What we found was, in general, developing countries have higher car pride, um, controlling for other aspects like the income of individuals, how urban their living situations are, et cetera. And so once you take out the fact that you have different types of individuals living in different countries, there's still some residual level of national car pride. And here we see it's higher in developing countries. And sort of this is, I think, really reflective of that aspirational piece of car pride, the fact that the car really is this symbol of economic attainment in areas where car ownership levels are fairly low. And in particular in MENA, uh, what we found was a United Arab Emirates or UAE, one of the highest car pride countries in our sample, um, actually only second to Kenya and Africa uh, for the highest level of country car pride. Um, a couple of other countries from the MENA region were included in this survey, um, Morocco and Saudi Arabia, for example, were also included. They are slightly lower than UAE in terms of their car pride, but again, in general, higher than most of the developed countries in Europe, um, as well as Japan, South Korea that were surveyed. For developed countries, the United States is potentially unsurprisingly the highest car pride country of the developed countries in our sample. And so I think that even though we're looking at most of the developed countries being fairly low, U.S. still an outlier. Uh, we really do have a strong car culture uh, and personal symbolic attachment to our cars in general that is reflected in this survey as well. Yeah, this is a bit shocking to me, to be honest. And of course, that's very unfortunate. So how do you see the impact of this car pride on car ownership? Do you see it impacting people's decision to purchase a car? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start with the U.S. where we really have a little bit more detailed data uh, from specific cities. And we have a couple of surveys from New York City and Houston, Texas, which were chosen as two very different metropolitan areas in the United States. And there we actually found surprisingly similar results across both of those sort of subsamples, so across both individuals in New York and in Houston. And what we found was that if you have higher car pride, you are much more likely to own a car. And so we do find that that symbolic sort of value that people attach to cars drives car ownership. And then if you own a car, you're much more likely to drive it. That's a well-established relationship. And then actually, if you have, if you drive your car more, it reinforces your car pride. And so here it's about the fact that actually the more you drive and the more you interact with that car, the stronger you build a symbolic relationship with that vehicle. And so actually there's a reinforcing cycle here where 
Higher car pride means that you're more likely to purchase a car. You own a car and you drive more. You drive more and you build greater car pride. And so there are different ways in which we can sort of break that cycle of attitude and behavior relationships. Um, And one of those is maybe targeting the attitudes of individuals before they ever purchase a car. So whether they're younger and haven't yet to make that decision or um, at the time when people are maybe getting rid of a car, do they really need to be replacing it? Um, Or are there alternatives, uh, particularly if they live in an urban environment? In the MENA region, we didn't have nearly as detailed data to be able to do this full sort of causal modeling. Um, But we do find there is a strong correlation again, between an individual's car pride and whether or not they're a car owner. Um, And again, this is really strong in the UAE, but we see it echoed in Morocco, in Saudi Arabia, um, the other countries that we have in the sample in the the MENA region. And so what we find there is, again, high car pride really being correlated with high car ownership and indeed with greater car use. So what exactly are the motivations behind this car pride? Did your survey look into this? It would be very helpful to understand the reasons behind such behavior. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And in the international survey, we really were going for, again, we surveyed 50 different countries, um, something like 500 to 1,000 individuals in each country. So as you can imagine, this was a fairly large data collection effort that was really about breadth getting coverage as opposed to depth. And so we don't really have the data to dig into what are the specific enablers of car pride? What are the different um, parts that go into its formation, for example? Um, That's not really captured in our survey. In the US, we've done some more in-depth surveys in a couple of cities. And what we found is that the highest car pride among any individuals in our sample are in two different groups. Here, it's the lower income individuals who don't yet own a car. And so I see all of these households or individuals owning cars around me, and I aspire to achieve that symbol of success or social status. Um, It's about wanting something that I don't yet have and aspiring to it. I think that's a huge part of this social comparative, um, aspirational part of pride, particularly in developing countries where Car ownership is something that is really tied to higher income, higher education individuals. And then the other group that had very high car pride in the U.S. were very high income luxury car owners. And so they differentiate themselves from the general middle class run of the mill car owner by the type of vehicle that they drive. Now, this, again, is very different in developing countries where you don't have sort of 91% of households owning a car, which is what the number is now in the United States. But I do think that this luxury brand continues to play a role. Um, I know we've talked to some extent about how in the UAE, many of the cars that are owned are these luxury brands. And that really reinforces the differentiation between those who don't own a car and those that do, right? It's that I own a fancy car that really shows my my social status, shows my success, my wealth to those around me. Great. Thank you, Joanna. So 
Did you also look at the socio-demographic differences and perhaps the impact of that on people's carb height? Maybe gender, their household number, uh, age, and so on. It would be great if you can talk about this. Yeah, so in our national survey, as I said, I, I controlled for some of these individual characteristics um, and sort of partialed that out. And so for the country level, um, we've already controlled for the fact that potentially there are differences in household size between U.S. and respondents from MENA countries. Now, if we look at the individual carb ride scores, um, because we have those in addition to the country scores, then we can start to explore what are some of the sociodemographic characteristics of respondents that would help to predict whether or not they have higher car pride. Those who do have higher income tend to have higher car pride, um, potentially because they have greater purchasing power. Uh, they have the ability to either own a car when others don't or own a nicer car um, than those of a lower income. Um, we do find that more urban residents have higher car pride in general across different countries. More urban tends to be correlated with income. Um, but I think there's also this aspect of if you live in a slightly denser area, uh, there are more people around you. So when you talk about this social comparative aspect of pride, there's actually more of a chance to demonstrate it uh, when you live in an urban area. Um, and then we find that males tend to have higher car pride than females. With age, we see some interesting findings. In the U.S., at least, there's been this hope that uh, millennials or younger generations will just not have the same level of car culture as older generations, and that might lead to lower car ownership and car use. And really what is emerging here is that that's not at all the case, that there's fairly strong car pride among younger individuals in our sample, um, both in the U.S. and across countries. Car culture is not something that's just sort of inherently decreasing with younger generations. There is a gap um, between millennials and previous generations in terms of vehicle licensing, in terms of vehicle ownership and vehicle use. But that gap can be almost completely explained by the sociodemographic differences between the situation of millennials and previous generations. And that as millennials age, they are, their behavior is converging to be very similar to those of previous generations. And so what this really means is that at least in the U.S., the differences that do exist between car use and car ownership of millennials, which are lower now than previous generations, can just be explained by the fact that millennials are marrying later. They are stable in their jobs much later than previous generations. Um, they happen to be living a little bit more urban, and that's a piece that may continue. But as they get older, they get married, they start to have kids, they're more settled in their jobs. We are seeing that their behavior looks very, very similar to previous generations um, at a similar age or sort of state in their life. I'm trying to understand who has the highest impact or responsibility enforcing this culprit. Do you think it's constructed? What's the role of the governments and vehicle manufacturers in this? So that's a really great question. And I think this goes back to first, just the social psychology research on pride. 
Pride is not what they would call a primary emotion. It's not something that as a baby you are born and immediately sort of know the, you know the emotion of joy or pleasure. You don't know the emotion of pride. Pride is a socialized emotion. So it's something that is created through interactions with other individuals and is sort of set by social norms. Um, and what that means is that it is constructed. Um, car pride is constructed and it is heavily constructed by the advertising um, of car manufacturers. The car industry is one of the leading global industries in terms of expenditure on marketing. They spend a significant amount of money for each car sold um, on the imaging around that car, trying to get that car to appeal to individuals and their sense of self. And these are targeted, right? So it's not just about cars as a symbol of wealth, although that is a very common selling tactic in uh, particularly developing markets. Um, but it's also about this particular car. If it's a smaller SUV that's meant for city driving, you see it in commercials with the soccer mom who's picking up her kids and friends. It's a symbol of the family. Or you see the pickup truck and its power doing heavy lifting on a farm, and that's a symbol of rugged manhood. They do target specific markets with this messaging, and it's about connecting it to that person's personal image. It's about creating a symbolic attachment between that individual and who they think they are and that vehicle. And so this is something that's absolutely constructed. Um, and I would say that in general, there are some countries that where the public sector messaging only reinforces this. Um, and you've actually, we've had a conversation a little bit about some of the policies in the UAE around um, luxury car brands. And I think it really does go into, it feed into the fact that the UAE is so high in our survey um, in terms of its car pride. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, Joanna. So I, I would like to link that to the topic of new energy vehicles. Do you think there is, will be a correlation between people's car pride and the adoption rates of electric vehicles or perhaps new energy vehicles in general? So I haven't looked specifically at the relationship between car pride and electric vehicle ownership, but there have been a number of studies that have really looked at sort of what are the symbolic values that or attitudes that individuals have and how does that correlate with EV adoption? Um, and there's one uh, particularly strong study that has shown that it's as much about a sense of innovation and sort of tech savviness um, and being on the forefront of technology as it is about environmental concerns. Um, and so while EVs are greener, for a lot of the adopters of electric vehicles, it's also about the fact that an EV is a new impressive gadget. It's the forefront of vehicle technology they're seen as sort of a leader in terms of the social innovation. And so again, it's about what does this say about me in comparison to the general car owner? Um, and I think that that, again, has been tapped into uh, particularly with Tesla's um, models. They have really sold themselves as a luxury car brand that happens to be electric but really speaks to, you know, we're a startup car manufacturer, we are really high tech, um, and that 
piece of their image has really resonated with these early adopters. Unfortunately, I can't agree more. So that takes me to another question. Do you think we might soon see something like bus pride or perhaps public transit pride? And what needs to happen for us in order to see that? Yeah, I I really want to see this happen. And I think it's something that the public sector, who is often the operators of public transit agencies, have traditionally sort of seen their role for information provision uh, to customers to just be neutral, right? They've said, we will give information on schedules, we'll give you information on where the bus is, but they don't see their role as sort of shaping behavior or building attitudes or a brand. There are a couple of exceptions to this, and I can get into one or two examples a little bit later on. But one of the things that I like to stress is that there is no such thing in this market as neutral information. That the way that you present your transportation options influences people's behavior, even if you're not trying to. And so the fact that they're not marketing their services, that they're not creating a brand, that they're not connecting to what it is about their service that individuals might enjoy, means that they're losing a marketing war with car manufacturers by not engaging at all. Um, And so there is no neutral position. And so given that, how do we create a brand around public transit to get the people that are riding public transit excited about riding public transit? First, it's really hard to sell a product that is uh, very poor. And so at some point, we do need to be investing in better public transit infrastructure and better public transit service. So it's not just about branding, it's also about just increasing the frequency, providing better bus service, providing better rail service. But as we make those investments in public transit, we should also be making the complementary investments in building a brand for these public transit systems. And there are a couple of things about public transit that could really speak to people. One is the fact that some of these technologies are very high tech. Um, Let's talk about trains that have um, communication-based signaling systems that can run fairly autonomously. Let's talk about the shared mobility aspects of this and the social aspects of this, where this is a shared space and you actually get to interact with different people That's a real opportunity if you sell it that way. And then let's talk about the environmental aspects of this. And for example, there are a number of electric buses, hydrogen buses um, that are on the market today. Um, In the US, you can go to some of the areas that have these buses in operation and there's almost, you can't tell that this isn't a regular diesel bus. I would love to see that bus be all green or other things to differentiate itself from the typical bus and sort of say, by riding this bus, you are making a particularly important impact on the environment. Now, actually all buses are green to some extent because they're a more efficient way of moving individuals. And so in general, your carbon footprint taking bus or train is much lower than taking a car. Um, But if we want to tap into, again, that differentiator, It's about, you know, can we sell some of these, again, new energy vehicles like you would an electric vehicle as sort of the social innovation? Can we do that same thing in the public transit realm? 
Um, and so I think there's absolutely space for building that brand. I mentioned examples, so I want to give one. Um, and this is the case of London. Actually, if you go back to around the 70s, the 1970s, riding public transit meant you had failed in some way in your life attainment. Nowadays, the red double-decker bus of, of London is a symbol of the city. The mayor of London, when they have their first day in the office, almost always has a photo opportunity of them taking the bus to the office. The double-decker bus was sent to Beijing to receive the Olympic torch on behalf of London when they were going to be the host of the next Olympic Games, right? This is how tied public transit is to sort of the symbol of being a Londoner and the symbol of the city. And that was done through years of building up this brand for public transit. And it was accompanying the investments that they made on the ground in terms of their transportation system. So things like a putting in a congestion charge in the center of the city and using that revenue to improve the bus network. But they also invested in the symbolism around those buses. They tied, again, those bus investments to symbols of the future of the city, the future of mobility, in a way that really created a brand for them. Um, and so it's about investment in the system itself, but also complementing that and leveraging those changes to really build new connections with potential riders and existing riders. I absolutely agree. That's inspiring. And I hope we see more examples like the London Pass everywhere soon. So my next question is about COVID-19, of course. And the question is, do you think COVID-19 did or will have an impact on people's mobility behavior? on the short and long terms? And do you expect that to have an impact on people's decision to own or purchase a car and also on their car pride? The COVID-19 pandemic has absolutely changed people's behavior and will have long-term impacts. Um, one of the things that it's important to remember is that uh, ownership of a car is a long-term decision. It's not like choosing to take a car for a single trip. Once you own a car, you use it more often. And so sort of trying to get people to change their view of car culture before they ever own a car is really one of the best ways to break sort of the reinforcing cycle of car ownership, car pride, um, and car use. Now, COVID has absolutely sort of been a touch point in this cycle, and I think in the wrong direction, which is that during the pandemic, there are real reasons to be concerned about viral transmission on public transit. And so individuals feel safer in private cars. And we've seen survey after survey that are starting to say um, that even if car sales are down globally, interest in purchasing a car as soon as people are able to um, has grown. Do I think that COVID has impacted car pride specifically? I would say that probably in the way that we've defined and measured car pride, that it's unlikely to have been affected too much by COVID, but I think that the broader value of the car has absolutely been impacted by COVID. Uh, we actually have a study in the US that we just completed that shows that sort of the value that people place on the car has increased about threefold 
during COVID compared to previously. Great. So I would like to conclude this exciting episode with advice. So Joanna, if, if you are to give advice to the following stakeholders, what would it be? So one, government officials or policymakers, two, vehicle manufacturers, three, individuals or consumers. What would be your advice to each one of these stakeholders? Advice to consumers. I would say that the car that you buy now will be impacting the environment for many, many years to come. Cars spend around 15 years in the global car fleet, even if you're not owning it for that full time. And so the more environmentally friendly car that you can buy now that still meets your needs, the better. If you can avoid car ownership, if you live in an urban area, there are ample options like public transit, walking, biking, but also now complementary services like ride hailing so that if you need a car trip now and then, you can get it without owning your own car. Um, now, not everyone lives in an urban area where that's available to them. And then I would urge you to consider either an electric vehicle or if an electric vehicle doesn't meet your needs to buy a smaller car. The larger your vehicle, the much, much greater the impact on the environment. And I will caution that if you're a U.S. consumer, um, we use miles per gallon as the main sort of fuel efficiency measure of cars. Um, now, miles per gallon is not a linear measure. And what I mean by that is that the difference between five miles per gallon and 10 miles per gallon is not actually the same thing as the difference between 25 miles per gallon and 30 miles per gallon. So what that means is if you are at the lower end of miles per gallon, so if you're driving an SUV that only gets 15 miles per gallon, get downsizing that vehicle a little bit and going to something that gets 20 miles a gallon, 25 miles a gallon makes a huge impact. So really consider the size of your vehicle. Um, the smaller vehicles are already much, much more fuel efficient. Um, and so right sizing really what you need um, is going to be important here. That's what I would say for consumers. Now for vehicle manufacturers um, to um, produce smaller vehicles, although I know that their profit margins are highest on the large vehicles that they sell, so that's going to be a hard, a hard one to convince them. For, for policymakers, they're going to be the ones that are really going to influence how OEMs evolve um, and what options that they have on the table. And so continuing to um, enforce fuel efficiency standards, and even continue to make them. The targets stricter as we go forward um, will mean that OEMs need to be selling more vehicles that are higher in fuel efficiency, whether those are electric or uh, smaller, more fuel efficient internal combustion engine vehicles. And then I would also say, if you are in an urban area, invest in public transit. COVID has impacted ridership, and there is this sense that, you know, maybe this is the end of public transit. Public transit is absolutely critical for any sort of economic recovery from COVID. It is the backbone of um, the mobility systems for cities. If you want your city to recover, you need to be investing in public transit. And that doesn't just mean maintaining services 
um, at pre-pandemic levels. This means using this as an opportunity for expanding services, for branding those services, for connecting those services to people who continue to ride and rely on these services during the pandemic, but also to potentially new riders who are currently working at home. And what does that branding look like for um, a post-COVID world? And I think that that's something that the public sector is going to need to think through, um, but they need to be having those conversations now and really thinking about public transit as one of the keys to the future of urban mobility and just sort of transportation, sustainable transportation in general going forward. Thank you very much, Joanna. This is one of the most critical topics that a lot of people overlook. And I'm very happy that we had the chance to have this conversation today. I'm sure that a lot of the audience will learn a lot from this discussion as much as they did. Thank you very much again for your time and insights. This episode is part of the CEBC MENAS podcast, which aims to promote clean energy projects, initiatives, and leaders, and to raise awareness around climate change, sustainable finance, energy efficiency, sustainable mobility, the challenges and issues facing women in the clean energy sector in the MENA region. This episode is part of the second season, which focuses on the future of mobility. Future episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast or SoundCloud. This episode's partner is MIT Energy Initiative, MIT's hub for energy research, education, and outreach. This episode's sponsor is the Honing Center for International Dialogue, a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with Muslim populations in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, and Europe.